Hi, everybody. Good to see you. We are in the book of Matthew. I hope you've had a superb Easter. And uh, for many of you, I hope it's been a good Easter holiday, at least. Um, and you've had some kind of restful time. We, we're going through Matthew. Uh, slowly, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And the subject of today's message is prayer. Prayer is uh, something that everybody probably does at least sometime. I, I suppose the atheists might not pray, but actually a lot of atheists admit to occasionally praying. Apparently a study was done in 2004 where uh, I think it was 30% of atheists said that they occasionally pray. And then another one that said that 17% pray often. Interesting stats. I don't know how seriously to take them, but it just shows how universal prayer is. People of all kinds of backgrounds, cultures, contexts, nations, places, religious experiences will talk about prayer and will engage to some extent in at least the occasional uh, prayer moment. Uh, but here we have the teaching of Jesus about praying. Uh, he, he, he taught quite a lot about praying, and this is just a, a piece of his teaching on praying, quite an important piece, but we will only cover in this message today some of Jesus' teaching on prayer because there's a lot more that we can unpack. But it's a very important part, and it's especially about our personal praying, our secret praying, uh, that we're going to look at as we get into this part of the Bible. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> and uh, from verse 5 to verse 15, and we'll just have it read to us now. Today's reading is taken from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, thank you for these words, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will be amongst us right here, right now, to cause them to break into our hearts, break into our minds, bring life, uh, bring faith. Uh, Lord, bring awareness of your Spirit, and bring love for Jesus and trust and confidence in him and, and knowledge of you, Father, that, that we would be truly from today more aware of your fatherly goodness and love and kindness to us and live in the good of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a, a curious uh, bit of the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you've been following it and, and if you listen carefully to what was just read, uh, you'll have a question because there seems to be at least a slight contradiction here of something that, that came earlier. In this very same sermon, Jesus said, and we went through this just, just weeks ago, uh, in chapter 5, verse 14, 
and uh, 15 and 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, listen, this is the instruction of Jesus the Master to, to his disciples. He says this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Pretty clear. Jesus is telling his disciples to show off the good works, to, to let the world see them in their righteousness, to, to be seen as the good people of God for, for a good reason. He wants it to be a, a cause for worship so that people who see uh, the goodness of the disciples will be drawn to follow their example and become disciples themselves. And yet here in the passage that was just read to us now, Jesus seems to be saying the precise opposite. He's saying, look, don't, don't practice your righteousness in front of other people. Keep it a secret. And he's going to apply the same uh, basic rule to the giving of alms. We've already touched on that a few weeks ago. And uh, fasting, which we'll, we'll touch on next week, God willing. So, so Jesus is now changing the tone and saying about some specific things. Look, these things, do not practice them in front of other people. I, I want you to watch out for that. And it's, it's worth us pondering why. What's the difference? Why, why do we see a discrepancy? I'll give you a, a little hint here. Whenever in your Bible you see a discrepancy, when you see that bit doesn't really fit with that bit, there's a good reason for that. We've got used to the, 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 the skeptical voice that says that proves that the Bible can't be trusted. Why would you assume that? Why would you not think the other way? This proves that the Bible is a more complex book than you thought it was. This proves that the Sermon on the Mount is a more complex sermon that it's worthy of delving into and thinking about and wrestling with. And indeed it is. There's meaning underneath it that we, we get when we notice the paradoxes and the, the slight wrinkles that need ironing out and the things that don't quite add up. Actually, it's not that hard to see the difference. If you consider, for example, other relationships of devotion, so Jesus is talking about the disciples' devotion to God when he's talking about private prayer. And you think about another relationship of devotion, I, I guess of deep friendship that you might have, maybe marriage would be a classic example as well, where there are certain kinds of expressions of devotion that it is really appropriate to give publicly. If I want to honor my wife, if I want to love her in a certain way, I might publicly express my devotion to her. I might even publicly express my affection to her in some way. But there are certain expressions of affection that I will not uh, do publicly. There are certain kinds of uh, devotional acts that are best done in private. And I guess that's a, a kind of a very simple analogy, but it, it, it kind of helps us to see that to think in terms of sort of blanket uh, commands in the Sermon on the Mount isn't all that helpful. We need to look under the surface. What is, what is it that Jesus is trying to say? Is he saying, never pray in public? Well, if he is, then he's, he's, he's contradicting himself because he prayed in public several times. He's talking about something under the surface. He's talking about a certain kind of devotion that must exist for the other kind to exist with integrity. 
If, if a man is consistently rude and abrasive and harsh to his wife in private, his public commendations of her stink. They are wicked. They are total hypocrisy. And Jesus is talking about something that must exist secretly for the public, for the non-secret part, to have integrity, to have authenticity. And in fact, it means that the fuel of our, pro- our public righteousness, the, the root, perhaps, of our public righteousness, must be private. There must be a, a secret life with God if our public life with God is going to be real and sustained and is going to bless other people as well. Generally speaking, that, that will tend to follow uh, a Scottish preacher from the 19th century called Robert Murray McShane uh, famously said, what a man is on his knees in private before God, that he is and nothing more. That's one of those scary quotes that everyone should have somewhere at the back of their mind just to kind of keep them humble. There's, it's a powerful reminder, quite biblical, of the reality that our private walk with God is the fuel, is the, is the powerhouse, is the, the reality chamber. And outside of that, uh, must fl- what comes outside must flow from what goes on in the secret, in the, the private place. And what Jesus achieves by targeting this issue is he once again shows, what, as he shows consistently through the Sermon on the Mount, all the way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you've got Jesus providing discipleship for the heart. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus going to work on our hearts. Jesus saying, the kind of good living that is intended in my kingdom the kind of good living that is intended amongst my disciples is good all the way down. It's good to the depths. It's good in the heart, or it's not good at all. It's heart goodness. And we need to see this because we, we tend to flip this over. We, we instinctively find it a lot easier to solve world problems by seeing them as external by pointing the finger, by seeing, seeing what, what could take the blame for this problem, by, by, by trying to do anything other than internalize it and consider the possibility that there's something in me that needs altering. And, and Jesus wants us to understand from the start that in fact the problems do flow from the inner life. They are inward problems. This isn't a popular message to bring the 21st century Brighton, which, which, which is terrified of anything that doesn't sound like feel-good positivity in terms of our internal life. We don't want to ever be introspective. We don't want to ever consider the possibility there might be something significantly bad to deal with down here. But Jesus won't change the subject. He's like a cracked record. He'll keep coming back to it through the Sermon on the Mount. You, you've got to see that the problem is the heart. The, the problem is the desires and the, the motives and the, 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 these kind of longings that, that grow up from the heart. Those are the things that need addressing. If those things are never addressed, it doesn't really matter what else is addressed. It doesn't really matter if you improve on the outside, if on the inside it's putrid, if on the inside it's, it's rotten. 
And he keeps saying, he keeps bringing it. We kind of want to change the subject, but Jesus will consistently point his finger at the heart. You've got to see the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. You've got to come back to that. And so our, our desires are under scrutiny in this teaching. And he's getting at a certain kind of, I guess these days we would call it virtue signaling. We, we associate virtue signaling today, I guess, with coming across as on the right side of, of public opinion, the right side of history, you know, the right side of, of a political debate and presenting our virtue, maybe online or in whatever context we find ourselves by, by being on the right side, having the right kind of hashtag causes, the right kind of, you know, I'm, I'm virtuous because I have these opinions and I want the world to know it. I want to signal my virtue. I want to be part of the tribe. I want to be acceptable. I want to be impressive because I, I, I've given money to the right things. I've voted for the right people. Or I've just, yeah, I've just hashtagged the right things on, online. That's all. I, that's what I've done. And so I'm virtuous. Now, that's how we would, we would certainly notice and observe that kind of behavior uh, in our context all the time. Jesus is talking about a kind of virtue signaling that was in his culture. And in reality, it sneaks in in any kind of religious culture, any kind of culture at all in reality, because what he's talking about is the desire to appear virtuous, <laughs> the desire to signal our virtue. And so he's saying that there are, there are those who pray publicly because what they love, he uses that very strong word, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. They have had their reward. They've had their reward. He said, there's, a, there's an actual reward. He's not denying that there's a reward. He said, oh, yeah, there's a reward. You can, you can go for that reward. You can. You can live your life craving the esteem and respect of your peers. You can make that the driving engine of your life. In reality, to some extent, we are all deeply tempted towards this, at least. And it's, it's much more common than perhaps you might have expected so far listening to this sermon. I'm you know, talking as if, as if there's, there's those strange people that love the approval of others. No, in reality, if we're human, we love the approval of others. It's part of being fallen humans. We love the approval of others. And maybe there's an innocent version of it. I mean, no one's called to hate the approval of others. It's not a bad thing if people approve of you. And if you appreciate that, if you feel like, oh, people were pleased with me when I did that. And I'm, I'm pleased that they were pleased. Well, that's not necessarily a sin. Jesus is talking about people who prize it as the reward of their lives. And people who prize this as the rule of their lives will even come across very virtuous, will sometimes be the most noble people in history. I'm fascinated reading biographies of people, sometimes some of the giants of history, people who've done amazingly virtuous things, it would seem, but the way in which they've been motivated when they've been most honest is by saying, I want to live a life that causes my peers to, to, to deeply respect me. That's what I'm driven by. Some of our heroes, would, would, in their honest moments, would say, that's it. That is what I really always wanted. I've always longed for that. And Jesus is, is saying right here in the Sermon on the Mount to the whole of planet Earth, this is his word. He's saying, listen, that, that is a reward, but it is a false one. That, yeah, that longing 
that can dominate the heart, that desire to be approved of by other people is a false reward. It's not a lasting reward. You can achieve it. You can receive it and actually be conned. It's not, it's not worth what you think it's worth. In fact, Jesus, in John's gospel, uh, he, he, seems to, he seems to suggest that the desire for the glory that get, you get from people can be a reason for unbelief. It can cause us to stop trusting God. It can actually be, a, a seri- it can be like kryptonite to faith. It actually prevents faith in God. So he says in John chapter 5, verse 44, when he's talking to, to the, the, the Pharisees, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, how can you even believe? You're going to have a massive barrier to belief. Why? Because what you're longing for, the glory you seek, is the glory that comes horizontally. And it's in the way. That, that craving is a prevention. It stops you knowing the glory that comes only from God. So we've got a big issue here. Jesus is, is wanting to, to deal with a, a, a kind of a profound problem, the challenge that we face as, as fallen human, human beings. And he's going to actually address it, but listen to the way he does it. Look at how he deals with it. Because Jesus' way with us Although it's challenging, although Jesus speaks it like it is, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, although it's a brutal sermon, when you consider what he's saying, you see there's an extraordinary winsomeness about it too. There's, a, there's an attraction, there's an appeal. <laughs> because Jesus knows one of the great secrets, and that is that you can't actually get rid of... Uh, a powerful desire, except by replacing it with a more powerful one. You, you can't simply squash it down under the rug, you know, try and just stamp on it, hope that it will just finally go. It will just, it will simply burst out again. Desires like that, desires dominant, desires say, I'm here, I'm taking over, I'm desire, and I will control you. Desire controls in its very nature. That's what desire does. You can only defeat desire with other desires with greater desires and so what Jesus does knowing that and because he loves us because he cares about these disciples that he's training in this sermon he says I'm going to help you I'm going to I'm going to help you to see how you overcome this hypocrisy I'm going to help you to see that there is a reward that is greater there's such a thing as knowing the father There's such a wonderful reward to be found in him. Jesus puts before us rewards. Jesus unashamedly appeals to his disciples on the basis of reward. Some Christians struggle with this for various reasons. We think, is that, why would I I seek reward? Why would I pursue a reward? I'm far too, you know, we get into sort of weird self-righteousness or, you know, we get too spiritual for God. Maybe, though, we've got a kind of superficial idea of what reward is. We think of the, re- the longing for reward like the, like the man who marries a woman for her money. He's seeking a reward. And you think, yeah, that sucks. That's not, that is not love. That is not hope. That's not, mm, doesn't seem right. He's just marrying her for a cash. 
He's seeking the reward. But we don't frown on the man who marries a woman for the reward of having more of her. Because he loves her. He wants her. (laughs) The reward is just as much there. But we don't see that as sinister. We think, no, that's, that's a wonderful thing. He's pursuing a reward. And, and Jesus wants us to pursue a reward that is not superficial. He wants us to pursue the Father. He said there's a reward to be had that is that good, that is so wonderful. And it's actually, it's actually the thing that sort of gives our life meaning. It sets us on the right track. It, it's what we were made for. Anything less than it won't do. So we need to be taken up with, with this delight. And you might say, well, how is that shown in this passage of the Bible? Well, there's a couple of clues. I mean, the fact that Jesus says uh, that the Father will reward you is, is ex, you know, pretty explicit. But there's even a couple of other interesting kind of hints in it. It's interesting, for example, that he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. The idea of having a room is, is kind of, for 21st century Westerners, having your room is, is a kind of a, no, a normal thing, right? We, we don't see that as a luxury. For a first century Judean, having your room would not be normal. <laughs> like most people who live on planet Earth today, his hearers shared rooms, and their houses would have probably been one room. So the idea of having your room... That doesn't quite translate. Actually, what's more likely meant by this is, is a reference to the idea of having a kind of a special storeroom, like a, a treasure room, a place where you keep things, a place, where you, a place that you look after valuables in and you replenish the stock and you make sure you, you keep it carefully. Jesus uses that word for your private place of prayer. When you pray, go into your treasure chamber. When you pray, close the door behind you. Go into the place where you keep treasure. There's a clue. He's saying something about the nature of this relationship with God. This is treasure. This is valuable. This is, this is stuff you keep carefully. This is, tre- this is real treasure. They think that there's a reward in having the esteem of their religious colleagues who hear them praying publicly and think, wow, what a fantastic prayer that was. And I tell you, as a preacher, I, I, I relate so much to that temptation. So, so much. Jesus wants every one of us to know the treasure of secret love with God utterly outstrips anything that the world has to offer in terms of its approval of you. It's so precious. It's so delightful. And you need to know, you need to be sure there's something more delightful than the approval of others. You need to know this, Jesus said. And and it's not just that that I see hinted in the passage. It's also the fact that he even makes a promise. If you look at it, read it slowly, he actually makes an explicit promise for us. In the same verse, he says, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. You stop and reflect on those those words, that phrase. Pray to your father who is in secret. Have you ever thought about what's promised there? that's That's a big statement for the Son of God to make to us. Where where is God? Where is he? Whole world wants to know that, don't they? 
That's what they claim. Well, if there's a God, where is he? I want to see him. Where, where is God? You know, and we build our altars and our temples and our religious traditions, and we're all trying to somehow harvest the, 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 the spiritual and harness the power of God. How do, we, how do we get God? How do we get close to him? We want, where is he? How can we get in touch? And Jesus says, he's in secret. He's in your secret room. He's in that place where you kneel down every morning. That's where he is. You want to know where God is? He's there. That's where he is. What do you mean, where's God? He's there every morning. Get out of bed. And he's there. He's right there. What are you talking about? You're missing, you're missing him. Jesus is making a, a stupendous promise. Your father who is in secret. That's where you can find him there. He is there. He is. I, I, I'm trying to, I don't know how to say this better. He is. That's Jesus like it's right there. He is there. Where is God? In secret. You're all looking at me like I'm, I'm gone mental. This is, uh, <laughs> this is a big point, all right? The Bible wants you to get this point. You, you have a God who has made himself that available to you in Christ. He's, he is willing to promise that he will always be there when you go to him in secret. He is that committed to your prayer life, that committed to his relationship with you. I'm always going to show up. Uh, you, you want a rendezvous? I will never miss it. I will always be. Why do I know that? Because Jesus said so and he does not lie. So I've got I to I take, take this promise quite seriously. And I mean that. I've got to take it seriously because it's, it's a promise. That's what you do with the promise of the Bible. You believe them. And why do you believe them? Because, because you, you're so tempted not to. Right? That's why they're there. If it was always obvious, we wouldn't need the promises of the Bible. If, he said, you know, if God promises, your football team will probably not win very often. That's not, that's not in the Bible, that one. The, the things that are just boring and obvious, it's the things that are like, yeah, that takes, that takes a little bit of confidence to believe. I take some a battle to believe that sometimes. Now, to be sure, to be very, sure, very important point this, the wonderful reality is that there are precious times, I hope, for, for all of us who follow Jesus, and, and, and we should look and expect them where, where it's obvious that he's in the secret place. There will be times where it will be so obvious you almost don't need the promise. It's just he's here. <laughs> when I pray, there are times when it's just... It, it just, I just know he's with me, so precious, so real, so apparently. But honestly, <laughs> very often it doesn't feel like that. Very often. And here's another secret. Most of the times when I do sense the presence of God in secret prayer are on the far side of having to believe it when it doesn't feel like it. You have to push through, usually. Usually. You have to do what the Puritans used to call praying until you pray. You pray, pray in your praying. You just keep praying until finally, oh, now we're praying. <laughs> you know, the wheels are greased. It's like, now we're praying at last. But it takes a lot of rusty cranking up of the wheel for me. For me, it does. I mean, let's be honest, for all of us, praying is difficult. Private prayer is difficult. 
Difficult in different ways. I don't, I don't pretend we're all the same. My, my problems will be different to your problems. I struggle with private prayer. Personally, I, I'm totally ADHD. I just cannot concentrate. I'll, 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 I'll sit and intend to pray sometimes literally for, because I'm a pastor, I get paid to do this. I, get, I can pray for hours and feel like at the end of the hour, <laughs> I haven't prayed at all. I can literally feel like that because I just can't concentrate. My brain is just like, I've just got a silly, busy brain. Some of you, you don't know, you, don't want, you can't relate to that. You're very different. But we all have our particular problems with prayer, our particular temptations and struggles. Let me tell you, though, whatever branch problem you have that you're sitting on, whatever branch of the tree called problems with prayer that you are in, the root, the, the trunk of the tree is the same. The trunk of the tree is ultimately I don't believe this promise. That's the deepest problem. That's the root problem. Jesus gives us a big fat axe here. He says, take down that tree. I want you to believe that your father is there in secret. Believe it. Believe it. I don't feel like, I don't feel like God's here. God, I've been praying for days. Every morning I wake up, you're not here. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm mocking it. I'm just, this is just therapy. I'm just telling you how I feel. <laughs> this is often my prayer. I'm, where are you, Lord? Why are you not here? And I've got to come back to Jesus. He said, he's there. Where are you? Here, dummy. I'm here. <laughs> he's here. Oh, I don't feel like it. I know you don't feel like it. That's why I tell you, trust me, press in, believe me. Believe me. And because we don't believe it, we're more satisfied with these pathetic rewards like human approval. That's so unsatisfying. Jesus is a great reward. Your father wants to reward you. He wants to bless you. You just treasure in that treasure house. He's there. Your father, you're made for him to know God. Press through, press through, trust, trust, believe, believe, keep trusting, keep trusting. You'll meet with him, you'll find him. Sometimes it will be seasons of feeling his absence, but don't trust the feeling. Press through, see how your feelings catch up with you in the end. See, see how you start to experience the things that you've had to believe after a while. And it's, it's, it's just part of trusting him, it's part of how are we going to learn? It's like, like the writer to the Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because if you come to God, you've got to believe that he's there. And you've got to believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. See, almost exactly the same point the writer is saying to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He's saying almost exactly the same thing. Good disciple. He's saying, listen, you, you, you've got to believe that he rewards. If you do prayer without trust, it won't last very long. You won't believe and you'll give up. You've got to believe that this is worth it and find reward. Oh, such reward to have God answer your prayers, to see things happen, to meet with him, to find encounters with him, to walk with him in a secret place, to have moments of fellowship with him where you think you, you have moments. I tell you, have moments in my life where I've sat there thinking, you could give me anything in the world and it wouldn't beat this moment that I have with God right now. You could give me all the money in the world and it would not replace just this, these sweet minutes I've got with my Jesus now. There's nothing like the reward 
of the treasured secret place with God. There is nothing. I tell you, I don't care who you are. or If you walked in off the street and you're sitting in the back row and you don't, you don't even believe in Jesus, I'm here to tell you there is nothing in the world like knowing Jesus, just knowing him. If only for minutes, <laughs> it's worth a lifetime of queuing up to know him. Even if just in fleeting moments, and the reality is even when those moments don't come, the reality is still true. He's with me. He's for me. So we need to have our, our spiritual ears attuned, our spiritual eyesight sharpened. You know, there's, there's Native Americans who lived in the kind of Niagara part of uh, you know, what's now the American-Canadian border, where they could hear the sound of a twig snapping in the woods hundreds of yards away, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards away. But they couldn't hear Niagara Falls, which was a few yards away. What's that about? But isn't it like that often? The way our senses are so used to something that we don't notice it. They're so used to something. We, we don't, we, and, we, and, and yet so unused to something that we, and, and we can be, I guess, spiritually kind of desensitized. We don't notice the realities. And so Jesus wants to help us. And the way he's going to help us is what remains in this passage that we've read. So let's just look, because he, he started off, as we've seen, by warning us against hypocrisy, against seeking the approval of people in our praying. But the second thing he says, and the last thing we're looking at is, is look, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases, this is verse 7, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, what's he getting at? Well, we can't completely fit into the kind of category he's referring to, you know, the pagans that they would have known in the first century AD. But not a lot has changed having said that. Prayer, as people tend to practice it left to themselves, if they don't know God, if they're still mishearing God, if they can't notice Niagara Falls, the way that they will pray, the way that we will pray, the way that I have prayed for many, many parts of my life is basically someone out there help me, more or less. If there's someone out there, sort me out, sort this out. The really presenting issue is me and whatever is out there, whatever or whoever it might be, you've you got you to gotta come in on the central issue right here. And Jesus is saying that's the wrong way around. What's got to happen is you've got to see more clearly what's spiritually real. You've got to see that actually what you are is part of something much, much greater than you. And not only that, but your satisfaction and joy will be found in coming to terms with that. So whenever I say to a 21st century Brightonian or Berliner or Amsterdamer or whatever, you know, you, you've, you've got to understand that the world isn't just about you. In fact, it isn't really about you at all. It's about something greater than you, bigger than you. I, I usually watch them kind of bravely trying to smile, but deep down I can tell I've just really took their toy teddy away. I've really hurt them. I've really annoyed them. And I'm trying to help them to see, look, 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 it's not about you. But it comes across as a punch in the face to them. Then I have to say the second thing. 
on a deep, the deepest level of all, this is actually what you need. You need a God who's bigger than you. You need the universe to not be about you. You think you need the universe to be about you, but you don't. That will kill you. That's too much. It's awful. It's not going to work. What you need is a great God. You need a God who, when he teaches us how to pray, he goes through this list of things that don't seem very high on our agenda. So Jesus says, here's how to pray. Let me teach you how to pray. The first half of this prayer is not going to mention you at all. Not once. It's going to be about your father. It's going to be about uh, his name and his glory. It's going to be about his kingdom. It's going to be about his will being done. That's what's going to really feature right up the front of this prayer. So if you pray the Lord's Prayer properly, which means usually slowing down, praying it carefully, thinking about it as you pray it, you're not going to get to talk about yourself for a while. That's going to come a lot later. And we think, Ugh, I don't want to know about hallowing you. What does hallowing even mean? Hallow your name and your kingdom. I don't like kingdoms. What are you talking about? And forgiving, even this obnoxious stuff at the end about if you don't forgive others, you're not gonna, you shouldn't expect to get forgiven. What? I, th- I came here to get my problem fixed. Isn't that what prayer is about? You sort me out. That's what prayer is for. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, listen, please, listen, that isn't good for you. I want to train, I want to help you to see that actually you need to come to a God who's greater, whose purposes are bigger. And actually your, your challenges and problems and issues that you're facing right now, you need to see them in the light of how great he is and how good he is and how great his purposes are. They need to, be, they need to take their right proportion. They, we'll come to them. You know, give us this day our daily bread. That's a big prayer. You could unpack that for a month. Bread is a big word in this book. What does it mean? It doesn't just mean, you know, baguettes. It means... It means it means the richness of God's provision. Jesus called himself bread at one point. Bread is, is what God, God Jesus, Jesus wants us to know. God, God wants to satisfy you. Of course he does. Give us daily bread. Give us the things that satisfy. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But God's way of training us is to say, come into your secret place regularly, daily. Come aside. Come to the treasure house. Your father's there. He's there. And start talking to him about what's on his mind, what's, 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 what's great. What, get lifted above the clouds. Get lifted above the horizon. See the greater picture. See the greatness of God. And don't be like a child in, in the wrong sense. Be like a child in the best sense. But children have to learn this. I, I sometimes spend time at, at airports because I'm traveling, not because I you know, like to sort of sit around. But there, there's this frequent occurrence, which you may be used to, where you see a child going absolutely crazy because their parents have denied them something from Boots or something, W.H. Smith, you know, some sweet or, or toy or magazine, because they've got to get to the plane. They've got to get to the gate because the plane's leaving. <laughs> and the family's like, oh, no, look at the toy. They push the push chair. And the kid's going mental and throwing his toys and going crazy. And it's like the kid thinks that being denied this, you know, I don't know, Haribo is, is the end of the world. 
Whereas actually they are being escorted to the holiday they will never forget. The, the journey, the trip, the adventure that, that will define their life in a good way. But because children are myopic, because we don't see, we, we, we are like kids. Our, our, our spiritual blindness can mean, God, you're, you're not showing up in the way I need you to right now. You've no idea. We've got no idea. What does a father do? What does a good father do? A good father gives. Jesus said that himself. Later in this very sermon, he's going to say in chapter 7, he says, he says you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give? God the Father is a great giver, but the difference between a father who gives and a father who just always gives in. He gives, but he doesn't just give in to every whim, every, every emotion, every time we feel like it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. Kids will do that, right? And, and good parents know sometimes to say no is the best way of saying yes. Because I have a big yes in my heart to my kids, I sometimes have to say no. Because the, the yes is too important. To, to negotiate with, with little mini yeses. No, I'm going to sometimes say no because I have a far bigger plan. I have far more, more great things in mind for you. So we need to actually just simply get to know who we're talking to, who we're treasuring, who our father is. And Jesus is saying, I want you to come aside. I want you to say to him, Father in heaven. Let him lift, lift you up, lift you up, Father in heaven. And he's going to challenge us on forgiving people and all these things. God, that's painful, that's tough stuff. Yeah, it is because my heart, my desire, my longing for my children is their freedom, is their joy, is their ultimate satisfaction. You won't get there by clinging to grudges, by clinging to the Haribos of passing satisfaction, but sometimes by just forsaking. Just, I don't need that. I, I, I know I need you. I want you. I crave you. I treasure you. I long for you. And sometimes he doesn't seem to show up. You make the appointment and he doesn't show. You think, God, I, I came aside. I did what it said. I closed the door behind me. I prayed. And, you, and we... we like little children, we, we maybe tantrum a little bit. And we've got to learn to trust him. He's doing stuff in us. He's training us. He's making us see the bigger picture. He's making it. He's growing us. And ultimately, it will be so that we can be more deeply contented, gratified, fulfilled in God, who we were always meant to be fulfilled in, than we could be by anything else. So we need to trust and learn to know our Father. Ultimately, to know that he, he knows us. It's like Jesus says, you, know, you, you don't have to babble. He knows your needs before you even ask, right? It's not ultimately about getting stuff. It's about getting him, ultimately. He knows your needs. He, he meets them before you even pray for them quite often, doesn't he? <laughs> In fact, the greatest need I ever had, I didn't even know I had, but he provided for me. 
I didn't know I needed a savior. Some of you, you don't know that you need a savior yet, but I tell you, you do. You need, you need the one that the Father gives. You need Jesus. You need someone who will die for your sins, who will cover the debt that you owe to God, who will pay the price. And that's why God provided him for you, so you could be adopted into his family. Maybe that's what some of you need to do today. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for the gift you've given of Jesus. Thank you for bread and wine. Thank you for this gift of celebrating who he is and what he's done. And we pray in the name of Jesus right now that you would help us to treasure what's real treasure, to value what's truly valuable, and to find it in the secret place. In Jesus' name, amen.